This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Just as the COVID-19 pandemic was hitting Canada, Saskatchewan was rocked by a huge spike in overdose deaths driven by the appearance of fentanyl in the drug supply. At the same time, the province has also been grappling with the highest rates of HIV infection in the country. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. Zach Vichera from the Saskatoon Star Phoenix joins me to discuss what communities are being hardest hit by the crisis, how the COVID-19 pandemic has complicated matters, and what gaps need to be addressed to stem the tide. Don't forget you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, we're even on Amazon Music now. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. So, Zach, like many jurisdictions across Canada, Saskatchewan has been hit hard by the toxic drugs crisis. And looking at the last decade, you know, overdose deaths in Saskatchewan seemed steady up to 2018. And they jumped up a little and then they really spiked in 2020. What changed in Saskatchewan to cause that sharp increase? In one word, fentanyl. Overdose deaths used to not be a huge concern in Saskatchewan. I think when the rest of the country thinks about us, they tend to imagine a giant wheat field. They don't think of us as a place that has the kinds of issues you would find in a large center like Toronto or Vancouver. And for many years, that was sort of confirmed in terms of the drug supply. The biggest concerns in terms of overdose deaths here were diverted prescription medications like methadone or hydromorphone, and later crystal meth. Mm -hmm. But in 2020, right as the COVID-19 pandemic was swinging into gear, Fentanyl just flooded the illicit drug supply in this province. And not just fentanyl as we know it, but variations of the drug that are equally as powerful and sometimes harder to detect. And it seemed like overnight that people who had previously been using hydromorphone or crystal meth were suddenly getting fentanyl mixed into their drugs. That's kind of led to a record year this year. Like, Where is Saskatchewan sitting in terms of overdose deaths in 2021? It's been a meteoric and very tragic increase. In 2019, we recorded 179 overdose deaths across the province, which was, at that point, the worst we had done in a decade. That was a significant number to us. This year, we are on track to exceed 400. So that's a more than a doubling in the space of just two years. That is how dangerous the drug supply has become. One factor of this that I think is especially alarming is that not only is fentanyl becoming more prevalent, but we're seeing these really dangerous combinations of drugs that you might know if you live in Vancouver or Edmonton or expect. But in Saskatchewan, this is completely novel. Mm. For example, I spoke to some people who use drugs out here who 
said that on occasion they would have benzodiazepines mixed into their opioids. And that's a really dangerous combination because the things we do to reverse an opioid overdose won't work on a benzodiazepine. So that creates a really dangerous situation where when someone's gone down, they're very difficult to revive. One former person who used drugs actually said that they got to the point where they started to identify what drugs were safe by color. People knew that pink meth, for example, was very dangerous. They knew that the brown stuff was dangerous. If you could get the purple stuff, that tended to be safer. Mm-hmm. That is just how chaotic the drug supply became. But it was basically a guessing game for people who were constant users of this. And on top of that, I should mention, it's not just people who have been using substances for some time. This really hasn't spared any community in Saskatchewan. I've spoken to mothers and parents of kids who took, for example, cocaine at a party and died. Wow. I've spoken to people who their family tried a drug for the first time, they believe, and, and, and that was it. It's gotten to the state of volatility and chaos where really no community in this province is untouched. You're having a couple of years with skyrocketing overdose death rates, but then you're also having a community of people who use drugs kind of living in fear that what they may be getting on the street could kill them and families who are kind of left reeling with a sudden unexpected death due to maybe the occasional recreational drug use. It it sounds like it's been a horrific two years in Saskatchewan. It really has been. And I think we sometimes in the media, we get really caught up in discussing the numbers when it comes to overdose deaths, right? Mm -hmm. And those are important because that lends context to this conversation. But it is always heartbreaking and never really changes when you talk to somebody about their loved one who has passed away. And you realize that every story really is different or unique. As part of the story, I, I talked to one man who lives near Regina named Roland de Herlay. And around this time last year, he was celebrating the holidays of his daughter, who was uh, a recovering substance user. And at some point during their stay, she relapsed. And he found her dead in her bed on the morning of January 3rd. And he struggles to talk about that day, very understandably. It was really heartbreaking for him. Mm-hmm. I've also spoken to a mother in Regina named Heather Balfour. One of her daughters passed away a few years ago of an apparent fentanyl overdose while attending university in Edmonton. And she had no prior history of substance use that the family knew of. So really, it's every walk of life. It's not just a big city problem anymore. It's not just constrained to the community of people who use drugs. I've heard of cases of fatal overdoses happening in towns of just a few hundred people, where literally everybody, including the coroner who comes, might know that person or know their family personally. As you said, it's affecting people from all walks of life. But are there communities in Saskatchewan that are being especially hard hit by this? Yeah. In Saskatchewan, I think what we see is that while there's no single cookie cutter template for who is affected by this, we are seeing disproportionate impacts on communities that from the very get-go had disadvantages or were underserved in many ways. One thing we noticed, for example, is that a significant proportion of confirmed overdose deaths are among First Nations and Métis people. And if you speak to community leaders, they'll tell you that that comes back to the history of intergenerational trauma in the Indian residential school system, which was very active here in Saskatchewan. Leaders I spoke to, for example, said that in almost every case of someone dealing with substance use in their communities, the shadow of the residential school system is really never far behind. It is often sort of the driver of this trauma and of this pain. And drug use can be a, a self-medication of sorts to deal with that, to cope with that. We're also seeing a disproportionate impact, I would say, 
in a few specific communities in this province, and especially in Regina. Regina, which is you know the capital of Saskatchewan, saw close to 100 overdose deaths this year that have been confirmed so far. And, and that number will probably increase. It's really become the epicenter of loss in this province. As you mentioned, we have half of overdose deaths being among people from First Nations or Métis communities when they represent just 16% of the province's population. What are experts and advocates saying is driving this tragedy? Is it a host of socioeconomic issues, you know, poverty, intergenerational trauma? Like, what does it play here? One of the reasons that we wanted to do this series is because I think we want to examine some of the very issues that you just mentioned there. Obviously, fentanyl and the more toxic drug supply is the reason more people are dying. But when you kind of dig into it, you realize there's a whole bunch of systemic problems and failures that are really contributing to this crisis. And these are things that we can control as a society. I'll give you an example. One of the people I profiled in this series was a guy named Delbert Painted Nose. Delbert, when I met him in August, was living in a makeshift shelter in an alleyway in West Saskatoon. He had actually managed to create a bit of a propped sort of system where he had these bed frames he had kind of screwed together and he had put a box spring mattress on top of it. And that's where he was sleeping. And it was not by choice. Delbert had been looking for a place to live for a while. But one of the challenges he said is, it's hard for me to stay sober when I'm on the street. Uh, He was actively trying to reduce his substance use. But because I'm a person who uses substances, it's incredibly hard for me to find any kind of housing that will support me or where I feel safe and secure. So it caught him in this sort of vicious cycle where he could just never really find a place to live until recently. I'm happy to say that now he has found a place to call his own. And stories like that really kept jumping out at me as did the series, whether it was about housing, whether it was about our substance use treatment system, whether it was about harm reduction. It seemed like in many cases, people were able to advance to a certain point if they wanted to get help, if they wanted to make a positive change in their lives. But then all of a sudden, the stairwell would just kind of end and they would have to make a giant jump. And a lot of them couldn't make it to that other side, right? Mm -hmm. And what advocates will tell you is that this is a really common issue, not just in Saskatchewan, but across the country. Some of the kind of antiquated systems we have to help these people, help them get to a certain point or are built for them to get to a certain area. But then once you get beyond that, they're trapped. They kind of are caught in this really frustrating cycle. And some people still make it through, obviously. And those achievements should, uh, should be really celebrated. But for a lot of people, it's just a frustrating situation of hitting your head against the wall. We've talked about the drugs crisis. We've talked about some of the underlying issues there, access to housing being one of them. And this is all going on while Saskatchewan is also dealing with some of the highest rates of HIV infection in Canada. Are there connections between the two? Is the HIV crisis being driven by the fact that there are more injection drug users there? Absolutely. It actually is kind of a a series of crises within the crisis, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Saskatchewan has the highest HIV rate among Canadian provinces. We routinely have a transmission rate that is double the national average and is actually approaching triple that. And it's been that consistently high for a couple of decades, at least now. It's been up there for a while. What's interesting about our HIV crisis here, though, is that its primary method of transmission, we believe, the primary risk factor is injection drug use. It's not sex which is the case in most other jurisdictions in the developed world, really. And I think what this really reflects when you talk to people who are working with these communities is that there is a population of people who are extremely marginalized, 
who are using substances and who either don't feel safe accessing services or just don't have services they can access. And that causes HIV to kind of proliferate among a very vulnerable segment of our community. And unfortunately, HIV, more especially recently, is also coming hand in hand with some other infectious diseases that are entirely treatable and preventable. Syphilis cases, for example, have skyrocketed in Saskatchewan. Mm -hmm. Hepatitis C is a real concern here. And while syphilis usually isn't transmitted via substance use, epidemiologists and infectious disease doctors here do see a link between prevalence of syphilis and substance use because it's the same at-risk community that is really being affected. What's really fascinating about this too is that syphilis is entirely treatable and curable. We know that. Same with hepatitis C. And with HIV, we have technologies now that can help reduce the risk of contracting HIV. And that can also allow people with HIV to live long, healthy lives with just one or two pills a day. That's something that was unthinkable even just a few years ago. But in Saskatchewan, people are still dying of HIV and they're still catching it in record numbers. Mm -hmm. And I think the overdose crisis, if anything, has just made that population harder to help and sort of amplified the problem. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Amid all of this, just as overdose deaths started skyrocketing in Saskatchewan and as the province is dealing with high HIV case rates, we bring a global pandemic into the mix. How has COVID-19 complicated efforts to address both of those other crises? It's complicated everything. It's hard to kind of understate how much the pandemic has thrown a wrench into all of this. I spoke with Saskatchewan's chief coroner, Clive Wayhill, actually about this. Before he was the chief coroner, Clive Wayhill used to be the head of Saskatoon Police. And he told me that even during his time in law enforcement, everyone kind of expected fentanyl to arrive in Saskatchewan at some point. It was not a distant hypothetical. They knew that the trend was going to start at the coast and move inward. So they were bracing themselves and bracing themselves. But it came so much faster than they imagined. And when it came, it coincided with the pandemic, which meant a lot of our public health resourcing was all diverted to that. It was all sent over to the pandemic. A lot of drop-in centers closed their doors for a very long time because they were required to. Mm -hmm. A lot of the nurses and health staff who might be working in harm reduction or working in things like HIV case management were diverted to COVID-19. Indigenous Services Canada's medical health officer, Dr. Ibrahim Khan, for example, told me that really they had to divert all of their STI testing units and much of their HIV staffing to COVID-19 testing and detection. And what he's worried this has done is not only contributed to the overdose crisis we have in this province, but also created a bit of a blind spot when it comes to HIV. Our HIV case numbers, are, according to preliminary data, actually decreased a little bit in 2020. Not by much, just like 10 or so cases, mm -hmm. but that raised a lot of people's eyebrows because we expected the opposite in a time of uncertainty and total chaos. And I think what you have to look at is the testing numbers. 
We performed more than 20,000 fewer tests in 2020 for HIV in Saskatchewan than we did the year before. Wow. And all of that comes down to resources diverted by the pandemic. So what a lot of doctors here are calling for now is as we hopefully are able to manage COVID-19 more effectively, we really need to redouble our efforts to look at HIV, look at syphilis, and figure out what we're doing about these syndemics, these linked pandemics or epidemics that never really stopped and have always continued. How have these now, not just dual health crises, but a trio of them, how have they impacted frontline health workers who spent the better part of the last two years grappling with all of these issues all at once? Well, that's exactly it. All the frontline workers who I've been talking to say that the overdose crisis on top of the pandemic has really done a number on them in different ways. You know, for example, there's an organization here in Saskatoon called Prairie Harm Reduction. And they, in October 2020, opened the first supervised drug consumption site between Lethbridge and Thunder Bay. So this was a big deal. This is this is the first site that actually existed in Saskatchewan and the first one for really thousands of kilometers in any direction. And they did this while the community they serve in the Pleasant Hill community uh, neighborhood in Saskatoon was also being hit hard by the pandemic. People were cut off from a lot of resources. They were thrown into turmoil and they were seeing rising overdose deaths. So they had to step up their efforts to protect people and help people through that. Their executive director, Jason Mercury, told me very bluntly over the phone while I was doing work for the series that he thinks this has taken years off his life. The agency is experiencing what he called really extreme rates of burnout. They're struggling to kind of maintain their resourcing. And it all comes down to his mind to inadequate resourcing being put into this area. The strain is also felt in other parts of the emergency response system. You know, I spoke to a paramedic who said that part of the drain for him is that he's reviving so many more people than he used to because of overdoses. It used to be so rare that it was something that he would tell his wife about if there was an overdose call. It was sort of a remarkable thing. But now he's responded to as many as three in a single day. Hmm. And what's hard for him is that as a paramedic, he has a job of reviving a person and maybe driving them to the hospital if they want that. But obviously, he can't force someone to go in. And he said it's really difficult to not be able to help someone more after that moment or for them to sometimes even be you know, sometimes hostile. Being revived from an overdose is not a fun experience, it turns out. And even the coroner, again, I talked to Clive Wayhill, the chief coroner in Saskatchewan. He said that coroners are feeling the strain of this because when you think about it, Every once in a while, a police officer or a firefighter or a paramedic has a good call where they feel good about what they did. When the coroner comes, it's always a tragedy. It's never good news. And it's always really, really brutal. I think a final thing to, to note here is that a lot of the frontline agencies that are dealing with this, they've lost a lot of their clients. Prayer Harm Reduction, Jason Mercury told me that he estimates that more than 20 of their clients have died in the past couple of years. AIDS Program South Saskatchewan, an organization in Regina, I, I spoke to a member of that organization who estimated that more than 50 of their clients have died since January of this year. That's a staggering loss. And what these agencies told me is that they literally don't have time to grieve or process this because there's someone else who needs help right now. And it just sort of keeps going. In other places in Canada, Ontario, BC, Alberta, one of the ways that they're addressing the harms of the toxic drugs crisis or trying to anyway, is through supervised consumption sites where users can have access to clean rigs, other social services, and perhaps most importantly, staff who are trained to reverse overdoses. Looking at Saskatchewan, are there similar measures in place there? Saskatchewan has kind of set a unique course of response 
in this crisis. It was probable to that of Alberta. Our government has really put a lot of stress on treatment options and has been accused by many critics of not focusing enough on harm reduction initiatives, even though they've also increased spending there. The government appointed its first ever Minister of Mental Health and Addictions last year. His name is Everett Hinley. He actually used to be the executive assistant to Brad Wall, the former premier of Saskatchewan. Hinley's tenure so far has been defined by bringing in a lot of harm reduction services that were not available in Saskatchewan that were already widely available in many other parts of Canada. For example, we only recently got drug checking strips in this province for fentanyl and benzodiazepines. That's something that BC has had for years and years and years. We also are investing more money into naloxone distribution, making sure that because that, that is a medication that's used to reverse an opioid overdose, and it's becoming more widely available in this province. And government's also made a really ambitious pledge to create 150 addiction treatment beds in the next three years. And that's a lot when you consider that there are currently 227, according to the Ministry of Health. But where critics say they've fallen flat is when it comes to some of the other harm reduction measures, namely supervised drug consumption sites. There are currently only two overdose prevention sites in Saskatchewan where people can use drugs under supervision. Advocates say this reduces the risk of HIV transmission, it reduces the risk of a fatal overdose, and it helps connect people with services. And in fact, we obtained government briefing notes that showed that that was the same advice that government ministers were given about such sites. But in the last two budgets, government has declined to fund them, which has left those sites to kind of cobble together funding from other places to stay open. Mm -hmm. Prairie harm reduction, for example, what I mentioned in, in Saskatoon, local businesses actually kind of championed their supervised consumption site and raised over $180,000 to keep the doors open. There was a theater pretty close to my house that sold more than $10,000 worth of popcorn for a supervised consumption site. There was a donut shop that was selling a special kind of donut for a supervised consumption site. And there was even like an artisanal honey maker that was selling artisanal honey to keep a supervised consumption site open. The site also had to open up a clothing store. It started to sell merch designed by local artists to finance its operations. Hmm. And while many people can read that as a super heartwarming story, and certainly it kind of shows the character of a lot of people here in Saskatoon, if you ask Jason Mercury, the executive director of the site, he'll point out that there's kind of a sad side to that, which is that they're doing this because they don't have stable government funding. They have to kind of have a job on top of a job in order to keep their site running. Looking at all the reporting that you did for this series, all the people that you talked to, for the province to start addressing not just the deaths, but other harms associated with this crisis. What are they saying needs to be done, maybe even just the first step in this? Or where are the gaps that they're seeing? How much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> there are just a huge number of areas where advocates say more could be done. Yeah. On the housing front, there's broad agreement that there needs to be more housing for people who are using substances, sort of a supportive middle step housing between shelters, and private apartments. That's been identified as a huge gap. For addiction treatment services, they say there is a need for services that are more intensive, more holistic, and go beyond the 28-day model that is common in most of North America. For harm reduction, a lot of people believe that it's time to at least start funding supervised consumption sites in a meaningful way, because we know that this is something that reduces harms in other jurisdictions, even though we don't have a whole lot of data out of the sites here in Saskatchewan quite yet. 
on intergenerational trauma and the impact this had on Indigenous communities. There's been some positive motion to support Indigenous agencies like the Saskatoon Tribal Council or the Central Urban Métis Federation Incorporated in delivering harm reduction programming. And many people want to see that continue. They say those agencies are uniquely poised to help those clients and, and help those people live in a healthier and better way. There's a lot that needs to happen. It's a really daunting task. And while I don't think anyone expects that there can ever be any kind of magic solution, the phrase you hear that gets thrown around a lot is, is silver bullet. I think the real challenge that advocates acknowledge is that this is going to take a multi-pronged, prolonged, and very focused approach to deal with. And so far, that hasn't happened, not just in Saskatchewan, but many would charge in any jurisdiction in Canada. It's tremendously important reporting, trapped, seven-part series on crisis that's going on in Saskatchewan right now is available at thestarphoenix.com. Zach, thanks very much for your time. Thank you. 10.3 is produced by Sean Knox. Theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Zach Vichera. More from him at thestarphoenix.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.